was talking to my wife like last week and I was I said to her uh, I asked Wendell why I never got to do a body life Sunday and he said uh, well we we prioritize that with people that we don't hear much from and um, so you're way on the back back list so I was whining about it and Rachel said well aren't you doing a couple of sermons on some element of sin in the next two weeks and I said yes she goes well wouldn't that suffice for what really you'd be covering on your body of life Sunday <laughs> which I didn't find very nice um, you know what I'm talking about the wives can be Okay. No, I'm not talking about yours. <laughs> right, right. The other... Sin in general. Yeah. The other joke I was going to say was when you were talking about me being medicated, and then I said to you last night, I go, well, maybe I'll go off script and say something to get me kicked out. And you said, well, it's going to take a lot more probably to get kicked out. Then I was reminded of that Groucho Marx uh, saying that he said, I'd never want, want to become a member of a group that would allow someone like me as a member. <laughs> but obviously that's exactly the opposite, right? I'm blessed to be a member of a group, even though I don't deserve to be a member. So, <clears throat> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Keep that up. I've asked a few people the question, what is the doctrine of original sin? And I get a variety of answers. Uh, but most often it's the description of the first sin in Eden. <clears throat> the doctrine of original sin is not Adam and Eve's rebellion, although that is part of it. Uh, but it's a doctrine that attempts to define the depth, breadth, consequences, and transmission of sin throughout all of human existence. What did the fall do to us, and how did it do what it has done? Herman Banvik, a Reformed theologian, put it rather straightforwardly. He said, quote, The doctrine of original sin is one of the weightiest, but also one of the most difficult subjects in the field of dogmatics. Close quote. It also happens to be one of the most enduring and important theological subjects. Chesterton said, quote, Certain theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology that really can be proved. <laughs> and, he, and he also said, and you tell me if I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, uh, original sin is the only doctrine that has been empirically validated for the last 2,000 years of human history. Thus, Augustine says, nothing so easy to denounce, nothing so difficult to understand. And yet the doctrine of original sin is unpopular in many quarters. The late Edward Oakes summarized it, uh, the current situation this way, quote, No doctrine inside the precincts of Christian church is received with greater reserve and hesitation, even to the point of outright denial, than the doctrine of original sin. Even in those denominations that pride themselves on their adherence to orthodox dogmas of the once universal church, the doctrine of original sin is met with either embarrassing silence, outright denial, or at a minimum, a kind of half-hearted lip service that does not exactly deny the doctrine, but it has no idea how to place it inside the devout life. 
Over the centuries, theologians have agreed on facts of original sin, on the fact of original sin, but have disagreed in the details. For instance, does original sin equate or entail original guilt? Just what do we suffer as a result of the first act of human sin? Do we, have, uh, do we only suffer corruption, or do we somehow bear the guilt of the first human sin, as well as our own subsequential sinful actions? And how might this guilt even possibly be consistent with moral responsibility? After all, if there's ever a case of something over which we do not have any control over or we're involved in, then surely that sin of our most human ancestors would be that, that example. What are we to make of such questions? And what actually is taught in Scripture? These two Sundays, I shall first attempt to discuss the history of the development of key components of the doctrine, providing an overview historically of the positions and developments with respect to the doctrine of original sin. And then in the second week, I'll seek to lay out some major theological the uh, theories of original sin, and here the purpose will be primarily descriptive. Also next week, we'll discuss what we all need to hold as essentials and what we can consider disputable matters uh, for further study and fun deliberation. So we're having fun right now, aren't we? For we need to get um, an understanding of the development historically of the doctrine, we'll spend today doing that at, at a rather feverish pace. <clears throat> now the main essential doctrine points of original sin enjoy a an unwavering chorus of support throughout the history of the church, and for a good reason, it has a biblical basis. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the backdrop of the fall. God created everything, land, sea plants, animals, humanity, and in doing so, he repeatedly calls each ingredient good. In fact, even very good in chapter 1, verse 31. By implication, the original created order was free of sin. God's only stipulation to Adam and Eve was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be de uh, desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her hus husband and he ate. And then they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. As a result of the rebellious act then, God issues the consequences as a result of sin that occurred. Genesis 3.16 then begins to talk about those consequences, pain in childbirth, pain in producing your own food, and then, and then ultimately dying and returning to the dust. The remainder of the Old Testament then is ripe with the discussion of sin and its consequences, but the discussion about the components of the doctrine of original sin are absent. There is no development of the garden account in the rest of the Old Testament. It's not even referred to. In the New Testament, the consequences are more specifically addressed. Paul, in particular, connects the human condition and destiny directly to Adam. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The principal New Testament scripture, which reflects on the fall and is central to Augustine's argument, which we will get into, is found in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. 
Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but, that, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as the one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to the acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's obedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Law came in to the increase of the trespass, but when, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> so we understand from the account in Genesis and the New Testament reference that Man was initially in a state of completeness, good, a state of integrity, where he was able not to sin. Upon exercising his free will, man disobeyed a direct command of God and brought judgment upon himself and all of humankind. We will look into these texts a bit more in detail next week um, when we categorize and compare and contrast these doctrinal issues associated with original sin. There is some uh, there is some discussion concerning the aspect of sin, original sin, found in the Second Temple period. Uh, that is writings from the early second century BC through the late first or early second century AD. And among these texts, there are only a few that speak of the consequences of Genesis three for the human situation: the life of Adam and Eve, also known as the Apocalypse of Moses, this is the late first century AD. For Ezra is at the end of the first century AD. Uh, second Baruch, first or early second century AD, and the biblical antiquities, also known as Pseudophilo, in the first century AD. The life of Adam and Eve tells the story of what happened to Adam and Eve um, when they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve serving as representative humans going about the business of life. Anticipating his death, Adam tries to explain sickness and pain to their children. In an account similar to Genesis 3, Adam recalls God brought plagues on Adam because Adam had rejected God's covenant. Eve bears particular responsibility in the story. In fact, she confesses to Adam that, quote, this has happened to you through me. Because of me, you suffer trouble and pain. Later, she claims that, quote, all sin in creation has come about through me. 
In 4 Ezra, Ezra traces suffering and death to Adam's disobedience. Quote, you gave him one command and he disobeyed it. And so you immediately appointed death for him and for his descendants. Close quote. Then he presents a story of God's people by tracing the series of events in which people exercised their inclination toward doing evil and chose to disobey God. He concludes, quote, The first Adam, burdened with this inclination to do evil, disobeyed you and was overcome. But so were all those who descended from him. The disease became permanent. The law was in the people's heart along with the wicked root. And that which was good departed and the wickedness remained. Close quote. On the one hand, Ezra recognizes the culpability of a long line of human beings. Quote, each nation lived by its own will and people acted without giving you a thought. They acted with scorn and, quote, the Lord, quote, did not prevent them, close quote. Yet he was aware that Adam himself was burdened with an incl uh, evil inclination. Where does the heart lean? Uh, why does the heart lean toward evil? Ezra does not tell. Although we do find in Ezra 4 that the human inclination toward doing evil can and should be countered through the exercise of free will in the service of the law. Second Baruch, written at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in around 8070, seeks to make sense of what Jewish life will now look like. And the book references Adam's sin in three sections. In the third section, Baruch explains, quote, O Adam, what did you do to all who were born after you? And what will be said of the first Eve who obeyed the serpent, so that this whole multitude is going to corruption? Close quote. But before we conclude that Baruch thus lays at Adam and Eve's feet the responsibility for human sin and for divine judgment, we find that Baruch follows this by speaking of all who fail to recognize God as their creator and who disobey the law. Although Adam brought mortality to this age, people are responsible for their future destinies. Baruch concludes, quote, Adam is therefore not the cause except only for himself, but each of us has become our own Adam, close quote. Biblical Antiquities also depicts Adam's sin resulting in human mortality, but emphasizes that God's people are themselves responsible for their own obedience and disobedience. These Second Temple period texts highlight common positions. One, Adam's disobedience results in his own mortality and in the mortality of all who come after him. And two, human beings remain responsible for their own actions. Let's discuss now a small sample of early church fathers on the, on the topic. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist and philosopher, was the first Christian author to discuss the story of Adam's fall post-Paul. In Justin's writings, there is no conception of original sin, and the fault of sin lies at the hands of the individual. Who committed it? Clement of Alexandria, second century theologian, also rejected the doctrine of, quote, inherited, quote, original sin, claiming that the reference in Job 1.21 to a child born naked from their mother's womb is a statement on the innocence of the newborn and therefore a statement opposed to the idea of original sin. 
He also rejected a literal interpretation of Psalm 51.5, which would have otherwise suggested that David was born into a sinful state. In the province of Cappadocia, the northwestern Turkey today, were served by three distinguished preachers and theologians in the first half of the century called the Fathers of Cap uh, the Cappadocian Fathers. Uh, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa. They are best remembered for their rhetorical skills and their forceful defense of the theological formulation at the Council of Nicaea. All three left um, extensive leg legacy of writings. What is rather surprising, though, in all that substantial body of literature is that they have very little say about Genesis 3 and the sin of Adam and Eve. They agree that Adam's sin resulted in death and that the redemption is the rescue for the effects of sin. But they never define the mode of solidarity with Adam, nor the nature of sin which was transmitted. The two brothers did tend to... Uh, um, Basil and Gregory did tend to view Genesis 3 allegorically, so they see Adam as representative of the human race and not an actual historical human being. <clears throat> Pelagius was a, Brit a British monk and theologian of the mid-4th century to early 5th century. Pelagius held that a man is free to do good or evil, and we are not prisoners condemned inevitably to sin, according to Pelagius. When we sin, we do so of our own free will, and we are free to do what is right and to do what is good, and therefore we are responsible when we sin. He admitted the universality of sin. He did state that sin is indeed everywhere, and it is throughout the whole world. The world is suffused with sin, and we all fall into it eventually. But this corruption of sin comes through imitation, not through inheritance. It is not as though we inherit original sin from Adam and therefore this works itself out as sinning. It is rather that we are born into a corrupt and fallen world and then by imitation take the pattern of sinning as well. So sin is not a matter of inheritance. We, are not, we, are, we aren't born in sinners, but rather sin is a matter of imitation through a corrupted world into which we are born. Plagius recognized that a man only could do good through the grace of God. He is not saying that without God's grace, um, one can avoid sin. Of course, you need God's grace in order to resist sin. But he would say that in creating man, God has already given to man all the grace that he needs in order to resist sin. There is a sort of natural gift that God gives to a man when he uh, creates him. And if man would would draw upon those resources, then he can resist sin. The fact is that he doesn't, and that he falls into sin is therefore his, his own fault. He can't blame Adam. He can't blame God. It's his own fault. He has, as a human being, the inherent gifts of God's grace that are sufficient for leading a sinful life, but people don't do so. They eventually all do fall into sin, and therefore we need now God's forgiveness and redemption. I mean, not to get too panicked, we're going to counter that in a second. <laughs> Augustine, perhaps the greatest and most influential of church fathers, <clears throat> dating about uh, roughly the same time, mid-century, mid-fourth century, early fifth, he is the church father who is the most significant in formulating the doctrine of original sin. 
Uh, he founded the classic do classical doctrine of original sin. In his analysis, Augustine stressed that all men, all human beings, sinned in Adam. In Adam's sin, we all fell. So we share the guilt of Adam's sin as well as a corrupted human nature. So all persons are comprised in the sin of Adam. When Adam fell, you and I fell. We bear the guilt and responsibility for Adam's sin, as well as the propensity to sin that we have inherited from Adam. Augustine stressed both the universality and the totality of sin. Sin is truly universal because it is endemic to human nature as a result of our fall in Adam. Every human being fell in Adam and therefore sin is truly universal. Also, sin affects every part of the human personality. We are not simply fallen in one aspect of our character or person, but all parts of human personality are affected by sin. So there is a kind of universal total sin as um, from the result of Adam. Augustine also stressed the, I'm not going to quote the Latin, but the, uh, the translation, not able not to sin in our state of fallenness before God. We are not able, well, what's it? I'm sorry, non non hmm. I didn't want to try it. This is too intimidating with everybody around here to try that. <clears throat> So sin is inevitably, uh, inevitably because we carry it in our very being. Therefore, in this state of fallenness, it is impossible for anyone to live a sinless life. We already carry in us the stain and the guilt of Adam's sin, and therefore we're not able not to sin or to refrain from it. Sin is inevitable among fallen humanity. Sorry, I missed that one. John Cassian, a Christian monk and theologian contemporary with Augustine, <clears throat> approximately, had uh, substantial standing in both the Western and the Eastern churches, primarily for his mystical writings. He and others like Vincent of Lorenz agreed with much of Augustine's position and, in fact, defended it publicly. But these men regarded some points uh, not only as novel, but as dangerous. They believed that the extremes of Augustine's position are, quote, innovations that degrade the glory of God, lead to moral failure, are opposed to scripture, and thus have no place in the treasury of Christian doctrine. A quote from uh, McCall's work on the doctrine of sin there. Cassian believed essentially that the human will has indeed been crippled by sin, but that certain freedom has retained to it. By virtue of this, it is able to turn to God, and just as though God had first turned to it, it is able, with the assistance of divine grace, setting before it the law and infusing the needed power to will and to do which is good. <clears throat> Essentially, man can make a tiny first step of his will, then God equips him to endure. So here we can see, even though we may not agree with that, here we can see that even within the Western church, there is criticism of Augustine on some of his finer points. And that gets locked in in the Second Council of Orange. Pelagian theology was condemned <clears throat> in the Non-Ecumenical Council uh, at Carthage in 418. 
And then these condemnations were ratified at an ecumenical council of Ephesus in 431. After that time, a more moderate form of Pelagianism, remember if we just refer to the Pelagius, thought that you were able not to sin. A more, a, a more modern uh, version of that persisted, which claimed that man's faith was an act of free will unassisted by previous internal grace. And so in 529, the Second Council of Orange denounces Pelagianism, and it did affirm that no merits of humans precede grace. It denies that anyone is saved apart from God's mercy. No one can do any good apart from God's grace. And God's works within us to bring freedom to our wills and to conform them to his own. All humanity has been impaired by original sin, and human nature is in bondage to sin. And unable to make even the first move toward God. So the council affirmed a good deal of Augustine's position. However, it explicitly denied double predestination, God decreeing damnation for some and salvation for others he has elected, stating, quote, but not only do we not believe that some have been predestined to evil by the divine power, but also if there be any who believe so evil a thing, we say to them with all anathema. If the council would have endorsed double predestination, Augustine's full doctrinal points, which we'll get into more next week, would have all been hook, line, and sinker. <clears throat> the council's denial left room then for further dialogue about exactly how Adam's guilt has affected us or if we have inherited. It left the line up. And then further, uh, further councils then actually opened it up more discussion. So it was not locked and tied down historically. Now the Greek fathers developed and emphasized a cosmic perspective on the fall, namely that since Adam, human beings are born into a fallen world, but they believed man was free, they did not teach humans uh, are deprived of free will and involved in total depravity like Augustine. In fact, historically, the Eastern Orthodox Church never subscribed to Augustine's original sin and hereditary guilt. Augustine wasn't really even a blip on the radar in the Eastern Church theologically. <clears throat> the Eastern Orthodox Church does not interpret original sin as having anything to do with transmitted guilt. Um, but with transmitted mortality. Because Adam sinned, all humans share, in his, uh, not in his guilt, but in the same punishment. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses the term ancestral sin as opposed to original sin to emphasize this. By way of illustration, Andrew Luther, Russian Orthodox priest, uh, who was an Anglican priest for 20 years, contrast the Western Church and Eastern Church on the doctrine of original sin. Uh, this is an excerpt I found out of a uh, competing views on the subject, which I thought was really good. Quote, another way of putting this contrast between East and West would be to say that the West comes to see engagement between God and the human as concerned with sin and its consequences. Original sin expresses the consequences of the fall, which renders human humans guilty, humanity guilty before God and subject to just punishment. In contrast, the East sees sin in a cosmic light, 
Sin has disordered God's creation and through this disorder or disharmony introduced corruption and death. Fallen humanity is seen not primarily as guilty, bound up in Adam's sin, but rather in the East, subject to death and to corruption or decay, of which death is the consequence and seal. Death rather than guilt in the Eastern uh, theology is associated with fallen mankind. <clears throat> now, in the Reformation, a reclaiming and a strengthening of Augustine's doctrine of original sin flowered. The principal reformers, such as Luther and Calvin, took over the elements of Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Indeed, they stressed even more strongly the guilt aspect of our inheritance from Adam, that we are guilty because of Adam's sin, and therefore under the condemnation and wrath of God by nature. In Luther's case, he still held to Augustine's doctrine of infant baptism in order to deal with the, original, the guilt of original sin that we inherited from Adam. Martin Luther asserted that humans inherit edemic guilt and are in a state of sin from the moment of conception. The second article of Lutheran's, Lutheranism's uh, Augsburg Confession presents it, the doctrine of original sin in summary form. It is also taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all men are born according to the course of nature, are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclinations from their mother's womb and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness and hereditary sin is truly sin and condemns to the eternal wrath of God all those who are not born again through baptism and the Holy Spirit. Rejected in this connection are the Pelagians and others who deny that original sin is sin, for they hold that natural man is made righteous by his own powers, thus disparaging the sufferings and merit of Christ. So today, what I've attempted to do is give you some elements of this and, and an overview of the doctrine of sin by highlighting these historically. Um, some of the formal elements were, uh, were discussed, but we'll do these actual formal elements uh, in detail next week as we really attempt to answer the two main issues of the, of the formula, formulation of the doctrine of sin, which are corruption and guilt. Are humans born guilty? Do we share the guilt of Adam and Eve's first sin? This is the question of alien guilt. The alien guilt, do we assume that alien guilt? Do we share in their corruption? If so, what does it say about our nature? How does it affect the human nature? And what is it exactly? What does this mean for how we view God's love, justice in relation to personal responsibility? So I look forward to discussing all that next week. I get to close for me. <laughs> Guy, fantastic work. <laughs> we can tell you spent a lot of time in preparation for that. It was a bit dry uh, and maybe read too quickly, but uh, overall, we just really appreciate all the work that you do and just your general, generally as a person. <laughs> all right. So um, I think that, uh, and closing statement, I didn't have a real firm grasp on this, so I went to Lob and said, okay, I, he said to me, the next sermon that you're going to do, you're going to 
we need you to read a lot of material on it and act like you actually can digest the material and relay it. Um, and so he gave me about, you know, typical about 10 books to read. But it was really fascinating, and it really did help. And, it, and uh, next week, by the time we're done, I, I hope to, that it will sort of encourage you to reexamine what it is that you really believe about the, the doctrine of original sin and what it means about, and with regard to your own theological perceptions and what, and what your current understanding says about what you're saying about God. So I, I do look forward to next week, and we'll all stand and I'll dismiss you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You're dismissed.